holiday of Hanukkah, actually there's a Gemara, Gemara says the following, everybody, the Gemara, there's a dispute between Beishameh and Beitileu about how we light the Hanukkah candles. The Gemara says that uh, mitzvah, on Shabbos, there is no, there's very little in the Mishnah actually about Hanukkah. There's virtually nothing in the Mishnah about Hanukkah directly. The mentions of Hanukkah in the Mishnah, there are several, they all come up indirectly. What if, you dab, what if you're riding in the middle of the street and your uh, animal is carrying some flax or something and it catches fire? And the fire is outside the window of somebody. That person is responsible. But on Hanukkah, the Mishnah says in Bavakam, according to one opinion, you're not responsible because you've got to put the candles outside your window. That's one of the cases where it comes up. It, it, there is no Mishnayot about Hanukkah at all. That itself is interesting. In any event... But there's one long Gemara about Hanukkah which comes up in Masechet Shabbat in the context of lighting Shabbos candles. So the Gemara there says that the following. It says, Mitzvah Hanukkah near Yishu Beitok. The Mitzvah Hanukkah is to light one candle for the house. So if there are six members of the house, on each of the eight nights of Hanukkah you light one candle. Then it says, Vaham Mahadrin. The people that are Bahadrin, what does Hidur mean? The people who beautify the mitzvah, everybody is lighting a candle. So if there are six members of the household, every person would light a candle. And that the, that the brighter calls Hidur. Then it says, the people really, wow, they really are beautified even beyond, even, even beyond the Mahadrin. So then there's a question, how, we, how you light the candles. So there's a famous dispute, Beit Shammai Beit Hillel. Beit Shammai says, Beit Hillel says you light one candle the first night, second night you light two, third night three, and so on. You increase the light every night, that's the view of Beit, Beit Hillel. Beit Shammai disagrees. Beit Shammai says no. The first night you light eight, second night seven, six, five, and down to one. Strange dispute, and the Gemara gives reasons for Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel that I'll get to in a minute. It's one of the reasons. It's interesting that there is a dispute, by the way, or a famous one, how to read the Gemara. It's not that topic, but just so you should know this. There's three levels. There's the Mitzvah, there's Mahadrin, and there's Mahadrin, Mina Mahadrin. So the question is, the, what says the, the Mahadrin light, everybody in the family lights one candle. So six members of the family, let's say, six candles. And it says a mahadrin, mina mahadrin, they light an additional candle every night, let's say. So is mahadrin, mina mahadrin going on the second stage or the first stage? In other words, two ways to read the Gemara. One way is what we, the way we Ashkenazim anyway do it, which is that every person in the family lights an additional candle every night. That's one view. But there's another possibility, which is that a mahadrin, mina mahadrin, doesn't mean everybody lights, but that the house lights one the first night, and two the second night, and three the third night. That's a dispute in the Shulchan Aruch. Um, and it, the Ashkenazim follow the view, as we know, that every member of the family lights an additional candle uh, on each of the nights. So anyway, there's a dispute between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel about how many candles you light. So Beit, Shammai, Beit Hillel says, as we all practice, that every night we light an additional candle. And Beishamai says, no, pochet v'holech, you light fewer candles every night. Very strange position. 
So the Gemara in Shabbos says, what is the, what is the rationale of Beit Shammai and, 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 and Beit Hillel? So Beit, Shabbos, so Beit Hillel says, well, Beit, Beit, the two, the two different rationales. I only want to get into one of them. One rationale is Beit Hillel says, each day you light an additional candle. And Beit Shammai says the opposite. Each day that's passed, you light one less candle. I'm not going to get into that. I believe Dvorah wants to speak about that. I think that's a topic, actually. What is Beit Shammai thinking? Why would you light a, a less, a, one less candle every day? It's very bizarre. But the second view is the following. So the second explanation is that Beis Hillel says a general principle when it comes to matters of sanctity we always want to add you want to increase the sanctity so therefore if you're lighting one candle the first night let's light two the second night let's always increase the light increase the holiness that's the view of Beis Hillel and Beis Shammai had a different reason Beis Shammai says or at least the Gemara says, Beisham might, might be thinking, Keneged Pare Hachag. What does it mean, Keneged Pare Hachag? So this is actually what I want to talk about this morning. Keneged Pare Hachag. Keneged Pare Hachag means that Beisham says we have, we have a, a paradigm, we have an example, that on each successive day you do less. <coughs> so what is the paradigm of each successive day you do less? Pare hachag. Chag is chag asukot. So the parim on, on all, all the festivals in the Torah, there's a, there are additional sacrifices that are brought called the musaf, carbon musaf. So on Sukkot, actually, it's the holiday with the most sacrifices. So on the first day of Sukkot, you bring uh, two kvasim, and then you bring four. The, I'm sorry, fourteen kvasim. You bring on the first day. You bring a par, you bring 14 kfasim, and you bring 13, I'm sorry, you bring, you bring 14 uh, kfasim, and you bring 13 parim, 13 parim on the first day. On the second day of Sukkot, you bring 12 parim, on the third day, 11, and so on, till you get to the seventh day of Sukkot, you bring 7. On the eighth day of Sukkot, how many do you bring? Which we call Shemini Yatzeret. On the eighth day, how many? You bring one, actually. So that's actually... We'll get, leave Shemini Yatzeret out for a minute, but on the, on the Hauk festival of Sukkot, the first seven days, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7. So every day you bring one less sacrifice. So Bishamai says, you see, then you have a, a, a series of things to do. An example in the Torah is that you bring the most on the first day, and each day you bring one, one, one less. According to Beit Hillel, they say that's not a good example for whatever. That's, a, that's true of Sukkot. It may not be true of other things. It's not true of the Hanukkah candles. <coughs> what I wanted to reflect upon is the statement of Beit Shammai that we light the candles in this way. Now before I get to that, I simply want to point out, and I'm sure the other speakers will deal with this extensively, that in the book of Maccabees, there are actually four books of Maccabees, but one, you see the Maccabees 1 or 2, I don't remember. It says explicitly that the festival of Hanukkah was observed because on the year the temple had been defiled, they couldn't observe the festival of Sukkot. So they delayed the festival of Sukkot till the darkest time of the year, 
which is the 25th day of uh, Kislev, we call Hanukkah. And that Hanukkah, essentially, it sounds like, was a makeup for the fact that we couldn't celebrate Sukkot. So that's what it says in Maccabees. And what's interesting is that Beit Shammai, who says, Shammai makes the connection between the candles of Hanukkah on one hand and the sacrifices of Sukkot on the other. So I just wanted to explore this relationship between Sukkot and Hanukkah. What are the connections? And at the bottom of it, what does it actually signify? What is this idea that Hanukkah and Sukkot may have some connection? First of all, just a, curi- a curious point about the parim of, 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 of Sukkot. Why actually, let's leaving Beit Shammai and Beit Tilo out of it, why actually, how can what, what makes sense of this, that on the successive days of Sukkot, we bring one less sacrifice? How, how do you understand that? It's actually, it's not, it's not intuitive, I think. I think intuitively we would say, but if Beit Hill says, you always add, why, go, why, why should you go backwards? Let's move forwards, right? So what's interesting about, just a thought about it, what's interesting about the sacrifices of Sukkot, these parim of Sukkot, is two things. First of all, Sukkot is a holiday which in the Torah is seven days plus one. The seven days of Sukkot. And then there's the eighth day that we call Shemini Yatzeret. The Torah says, Basukot Teshu Shivat Yamim. That's fine. Where does it say that in the Torah? It says it in, let's find this, Basukot Teshu Shivat Yamim. So this is found in chapter in Bayikra. <coughs> this is in uh, here on page 263. Actually, it's on page 262. No, actually, it's on page 263. I take it back. 263, towards the end of this chapter, it says, Basukot you shall sit in the sukkah for seven days. All the uh, citizens in Israel shall dwell in Sukkot. In order that the generations know, and the Torah gives a reason that the future generations should know that I caused Israel to live in, in booths, in Sukkot, when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. Earlier, just a couple of verses earlier, the Torah says, in verse 39, You shall observe the festival of God for seven days. On the first day is a cessation of work. And on the eighth day is a session of work. Keep it for seven days. On the eighth day you don't work. First and the eighth day you don't work. And then it says, Take for yourselves on the first day of Sukkot the following, a, the product of, here they translate hardar trees. Hardar means actually beautiful. So I mean a beautiful tree. Kapot marim, then it says, branches of palm trees, boughs of leafy trees, willows of the brook. And rejoice, and rejoice before God for seven days. 
So the parsha is very strange. Parsha talks about rejoicing before God for seven days. Sounds like you're taking these what we call the Arba Minim. Talks about dwelling in the booths for seven days, and then it says in the beginning, in verse thirty-nine, Shmini Shabbaton on the eighth day, a cessation from work. So what is the relationship of the eighth day to the seven days? It sounds like Sukkot is seven days, then somehow there's an eighth day. And the same thing is true when the Torah lists the sacrifices. The sacrifices are listed in a different book in Bamidbar, and this comes up in chapter 20, 28, on page 29, on page 354. It starts on 353. talks all the, the sacrifices of Sukkot. Verse number 12. And then it goes on the second day, on the third day. Right? That's where you have the list of sacrifices. On the first day, 13 parim, it says. 13 parim. On the second day, 12. 11, 10, 9, 8. And then on page 354, on the seventh day, right, you shall bring parim shiva, seven parim. Okay? On the eighth day, atzeret, don't do any work. One par. 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7. And then on the eighth day, there's one. So it sounds like the festival of Sukkot, if we consider Shmini Yatzeret part of Sukkot, sounds like it's part of Sukkot, but it's also separate. But it has a different order of sacrifices. It doesn't go in the same order. It's not six. It's one. So first of all, I was thinking that actually, in terms of, in terms of the sacrifices, in the Hasidic writings, there's tons of stuff about this, because it precedes it. If you count up all of the parim of Sukkot, you add them all up, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7, you get to 70. And we have 70 nations, basically. Actually, already in the Chumash, there's 70 nations. There are also 70 souls that go down to Egypt. So it sounds like the way it's understood is that the festival of Sukkot has a universal cast to it. The sacrifices of Sukkot, which is 70 actually, are representing, potentially, the world. But the eighth day, there's only one sacrifice. So what it sounds like is within the holiday of Sukkot, there's an internal, one might say, contradiction or conflict. Is Sukkot a universal festival? On one hand, the 70 parim are the 70 nations of the world. Then the eighth day sounds like that's a different relationship. There it's an emphasis on the special relationship of Israel to God. And that's probably the reason. In Chutz Laaretz, the second day of Shemini Yatzeret, we call Simchas Torah. And we celebrate the Torah. So the Torah is Israel's, it's God's gift to Israel, basically. So it sounds like that conflict is interesting. What do you want to say, Frida? I just think could be meant to be complimentary. There's some stuff for Israel, some stuff for Israel. Oh, definitely, right. It doesn't have to be a conflict. No, I, I, I didn't mean actually be a conflict. No, I agree. I, it's both, obviously, but they're two, they're, the days are representing different situations. Israel is part of the world. Israel is concerned about the world. That's the first seven days. There is and the holiday of Sukkot. I don't want to get too much into Sukkot. It's supposed to be about Hanukkah, but, but Hanukkah is... Point to Maccabees, a, a belated Sukkot. And it's not just Maccabees, otherwise I wouldn't be talking here. But, um, no, I would say I agree with you. Either complementary or more of a focus on one is a focus on the other, etc. So that's the. So it turns out, I mean, one way, simple way to explain why Pochtin Vaholech, why do you go down 13, 12, 11, 
there's a very simple way to explain it actually. Because essentially, if you think about Sukkot as seven plus one, then actually the seventh day of Sukkot is the last day of Sukkot. Seventh day of Sukkot is not just another day. The seventh day of Sukkot is not just another day of Cholamoid. The seventh day of Sukkot, from one perspective, is one of the days of the intermediate days of the festival. From a different perspective, it's actually the last day of the festival. Last days of festival have a special character. In fact, in our practice, it is so. Because the seventh day of Sukkot, as we practice it, is not a regular, normal Cholamoid. It's Oshad Rabbah. Now, Oshad Rabbah is a very odd day, but Oshad Rabbah has elements of of the, of, the, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the holy days of the festival, as well as the plain days of Cholamoe. So the point is, on the seventh day of Sukkot, you bring seven parim. There's probably something to that bringing seven parim on the seventh day. And if you want to get to 70, you have no choice but to start at 13. So I'm sure Beitil would say that Pochet Vaholech is actually accidental in a sense. You want to get to seven parim on the seventh day, you know, the only way to get to seven parim is to maintain the other point of having many sacrifices and a total of 70 is to, is to start with a bigger number. In any event, what's interesting is that it's not just pochit v'ahoe from 13 to 7, but the eighth day actually you only have one. So the eighth day, you really pochit v'ahoe. In any event, Beit Hillel, Beit Shammai, whether you accept the view or not, points us in the direction of Sukkot and Hanukkah having something in common. So I just wanted to explore that and to point out that there are other ways in which Hanukkah and Sukkot just obviously have, have, a, have a connection. And I'll mention two or three ways in which they're connected. And then we'll explore it and see what it, what it signifies. First of all, let's start with the following point, that Sukkot essentially is a holiday which has, which has eight days. Some of the observances are only seven days, but Sukkot is an eight-day holiday. And Hanukkah is an eight-day holiday. Our holidays, generally speaking, well, generally, no, generally, but they're not, the only eight-day holiday we have is actually Sukkot. So Hanukkah seems modeled on Sukkot in that way, but there's something else about Hanukkah and Sukkot that's very interesting, something which is unique to Hanukkah. We don't have this concept any other place. And that is what the little text that I recited before, from Shabbat, about the way we light the candles. <coughs> On the lighting of the candles, the Gemara already has three levels. The Mitzvah, the Mahadrin, those who beautify it, and then HaMahadrin Minah Mahadrin, those who really beautify it. Mahadrin Minah Mahadrin. Where else do we have such a concept that you have three levels of performance, two of which are called either Mahadrin or Mahadrin Minah Mahadrin? We have that no other place. But the idea of Hidur Mitzvah, the idea of beautifying a Mitzvah, that we do have. That we have it as a general proposition that when you do a Mitzvah, you should do it beautifully. But there's one place in the Torah where it seems to be a, a, a definition of the way you do the Mitzvah. And that's the holiday of Sukkot. Ukachtem lachem bayom harishon creates Hadar. So you should take a beautiful fruit on the first day. Now we have a tradition about this beautiful fruit that is the uh, Etrog. That's our tradition. But the Torah didn't say the word etrog. The Torah said create sadar. So what's interesting is that the, this idea of hidur mitzvah has a general application to all mitzvot, but has a very specific application to, 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 to Sukkot. 
And I wanted to mention something actually very interesting about the holiday of Sukkot. Then we'll move to Sukkot and to Hanukkah. And that is, on Sukkot there are two mitzvot. One is the mitzvah to sit in the sukkah. Basukot That's one mitzvah. And then, just pre- prior to that, on page 263, chapter 24, we have something else. We have, That on the first day of the festival, we call them the four species, take these four species, and you are to rejoice before God for seven days. So here we have a great dispute between the Prushim, the Jewish tradition, the, the, the rabbis of the Jewish tradition on one hand, and that tradition, and the Karaites on the other. The Karaites had a different understanding of this verse. And the Karaites understand, the Karaites are actually very interesting. A lot of wars against the Karaites. You can reject them completely. The truth of the matter is, they have added to our understanding of the Torah. Let me see if I can find this very quickly. So the Karaites made the following claim. The Karaites made the claim that these four species, okay, these Dalad Minim, Torah says, take the Dalad Minim, were not, the purpose of them was not to weigh them, as we do. We take the Lulav and the Etrog, we bind them together with the, with the Aravot and the Hadassim, and we wave them around, okay? That's our understanding of to take on the first day. And rejoice before God for seven days. What does that mean, rejoice before God for seven days? So the Gemara says that in the Temple, in the Mikdash, they took the Lulav and the Etrog for seven days. That's the Talmudic understanding of that verse. You have to take it for one day. Nowadays we take it for seven days even outside the temple as a remembrance of the temple. But fundamentally, it's one day. But in the temple for seven days. Smach them seven days. The Karaites said that's not what the Torah says. At all. The Karaites said something else. You shall take for yourself on the first day means by the first day. Doesn't mean on the first day. Right? And, like the Torah says, Bayom HaRishon Tashbisu Sa'armi Batechem. On the first day, get rid of the chametz. doesn't mean the first day. It means by the first day. So he says, by preparatory to the first day, you shall gather these beautiful, these beautiful things that grow, the hadassim and the aravot and the priyets adar. And what do you do with these things, they said. What do you think you do with them? To rejoice before God for seven days, what do you do? You build the sukkah from them. The, the understanding of the Karaites is, you build the sukkah. They don't believe in the da- waving the Dalad Minim. They believe the verse says you take them to build the sukkah. Now, why would they say such a thing? Why would they say such a thing? They have a verse. They have a story. And the story is like this. The story is found in this Torah, in this uh, Bible, on page 1875. Page 1875 is the story of, of Ezra. Okay? And the story of Ezra is reading the Torah to all the people. It's the top of 1874. He reads the Torah. And they're all listening to the Torah reading. It sounds very much like, actually, this whole business of Ezra reading the Torah to all the people and telling them about the laws. 
is reminiscent of what the Torah has at the end of the Chumash. It's a mitzvah called Hakel. Every seven years, gather all the people together and read them the Torah to instill fear in the people. They should observe the mitzvot, etc. That's an activity that takes place once every seven years on the festival of Sukkot, actually. The Vokal Yisrael. In any event, he reads them this whole Torah and he says to them and he says to them that he's reading on the seventh month of the first day which we call Rosh Hashanah actually and he tells the people don't be sad you've heard all this stuff don't be sad go out and eat and drink and be merry okay this is the source and on Rosh Hashanah you shouldn't fast right. next day they're listening to the Torah listen to this in verse 14 it's unbelievable actually verse 14 the people here, they're reading the Torah. A chiddush. They never heard this before. That in the seventh month, you're supposed to sit in the sukkah. They never... Basher says, Asher yashmiu v'yaviru kol b'chol areyem. They should publicize this. Uvirushalayim leymar. Tell everybody. Tzuahar. Go up to the mountain. They should run out. They should bring these various uh, things that grow. Among them, we don't have in the Torah. Maybe not. We have. Right? It's a Lulav. Away eight zavot, eight zavot v'yarvinacha, hadasim aravos, right? Arvinach. So three of the four minim we have over here. What's the purpose? Go to the mountain to build a sukkah. So the Karaite said, obviously, gather these things, gather these various species means to build the sukkah, which you sit in for seven days and you rejoice in your sukkah for seven days. That's what the Karaite said. Could be. Personally, I don't think it's right. Actually, but that's another. But it's certainly very, it's, I would say it's compelling. Suggested. It's certainly highly suggestive. What's interesting is, why do I mention this? I'll tell you why. Because we have a concept in the Mishnah when it comes to the Sukkah. Everybody knows that in the Sukkot, very often people make uh, all kinds of, we, we try to beautify the Sukkah. It's called Noi Sukkah. Right? So people they put, put drawings on the Sukkah, they put pictures on the Sukkah, they try to make the Sukkah very beautiful. That's called Noi Sukkah. The Gemara in, in Masechet Sukkah talks about these decorations of the Sukkah. And the Gemara says the following, Noi Sukkah Kesukkah. The decorations of the Sukkah have the same status as the Sukkah itself. The Sukkah is, you, you're not allowed to benefit from the Sukkah. The Sukkah, you build a Sukkah. Let's say you have some wood on top of the Sukkah, you want to take a bat there, play baseball or something. You're not allowed to do that. The Sukkah is, is actually Muktza. You can't take the Sukkah. And the source is, Mark says, Kishem Shechal, Shem Shemayim, Chag Sukkot. The same way a sacrifice is forbidden to benefit from, so is the Sukkah. And that is true, says the Gemara, not just of the Sukkah itself, the walls and the roof and the floor, but all the hangings in the Sukkah, all the decorations of the Sukkah, Noi Sukkah, anything used to beautify the Sukkah has the same status as the Sukkah. So it's interesting that this Talmudic uh, statement reflects maybe this other potential reading of the Torah that actually these Eitz and all this other thing, Eitz Hadar, 
the, the, the beautiful trees are there not to wave separately, but to beautify the sukkah. In any event, the idea of hidur mitzvah, though it has a general application, has a specific application to, not just to the, to the Dalit Minim, but also to the sukkah itself. So Chanukah and Sukkot have three things in common then. First of all, they have this, according to Beit Shammai, they have something about the series of, of events, and the question is how you order them. They have the eight-day festival. They have the Hidur. So I wanted to talk about, in this uh, little brief uh, session, what is this actually about? What is this idea that Sukkot and Chanukah have something in common? And, and what is actually the difference between them? And to raise certain questions that hopefully over the course of this little series will be addressed from both a historical standpoint and from other standpoints as well. Because if we think about where we have Hidur, where do we have something where the, I would say the biblical text, starting with the Torah, emphasize beauty? Where is beauty, majesty and beauty, splendor? Where does that actually appear in our biblical text? In, in what context? Gan Eden is not called beautiful, I don't think, although Gan Eden itself sounds like it's a beautiful place. And that could be true, actually. But Gan Eden is not with us anymore. I mean, although it actually is, what you're saying is very relevant. Maybe I'll come back to what you're suggesting. But I'll tell you where it comes up over and over again. The Mishkan. It comes up with the temple. And I'll mention three ways that it comes up in terms of the temple. The first thing is that I'm not even talking about Solomon's temple, which is ornate and enormous, several chapters describing the beauty of Solomon's temple. Let's leave Solomon's temple out. That's a beauty which is it's very ornate, it's very lavish. Let's talk about the temple in the, in the, in the Torah, which is not lavish at all. It's a, it's a bunch of curtains, but it's also very beautiful. It's also very simple. In that temple, so first of all, we are told that the, to, do, to serve in the temple, generally speaking, the, those chosen to serve, who are the Kohanim, can't just walk in with any kind of clothing and serve. They have to wear big day kahuna. The, Yosito, big day, the, the priestly vestments are required for service. The Yosito, big day, kahuna ubanav, So the big day kahuna are described, those serving in the temple, they only serve if they are wearing the vestments which have two adjectives attached to them. What is kavod, which is, I would say, respectful garb, uh, dig- dignified, dignified clothing, kavod, and tiferet. Tiferet is like beauty, a pair is beauty, or majesty. So the majestic and dignified clothing. Kavod with tiferet. I'm not going to get into this, the Gemaras, which talk about this in Sechaz Vachim, that the garments which are not beautiful and not dignified, maybe they're ragged, maybe they don't fit properly, etc., etc., maybe they're stained, they're invalid. You can't, you can't wear those. The temple service has to be carried out with kavod or with tiferet. And it, it's true of the people serving in the temple. It's certainly true of the temple itself. The Torah spends a lot of time, a lot of space, uh, describing the various vessels of the temple. And they are to be a temple is a place of, 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 of dignity, a place of beauty. Solomon had, we can disagree about beauty, Solomon had a very lavish temple, very ornate temple. The Mishkan of the Chumash is 
relatively simple, actually. There's a simplicity to it, but covered with tiferet. That's one halacha. The halacha of covered with tiferet. Now we have a second halacha regarding the animals that are brought, the sacrifices of... I bet, but you mentioned God Eden before. It's important to understand that Gan Eden is the prototype for the temple. In other words, the Torah starts with the Garden of Eden, which is the sacred space. From that place we are banished. So we can never go back to Gan Eden. The rest of the Chumash is a, an attempt to create an alternative to Gan Eden. You can never go back to Gan Eden because, because you have knowledge. You can't return there. Gan Eden is not for, not for us. But Gan Eden is a but you can create an alternative in the world, that is to say, a sacred space where God and the human can, can dwell together. In the Chumash, there were essentially two models for that. One is a land, that the Torah calls the land of Canaan. God can reside, if you behave yourself, you can stay in that land. And then within the land is a sacred space. In the book of Genesis, it's Mount, Mount Moriah, Tara Moriah, that Abraham discovers or is sent to. But in the book of Exodus, it's the Mishkan. The Mishkan is the movable sacred space when you come into the land is the Mikdash. So your point about Gan Eden is well taken, actually. And we can have a very fruitful and lengthy discussion about that. The nature of alternative sacred space, etc. That's very true. It is called Eden, which is pleasurable, perhaps beautiful. There's a very beautiful description of it, etc. That's, that's, anyway, that's in terms of the, those who work in the temple are required to dress the cover with tiferet. Now what about the animals, the sacrifices that are brought in the temple? So here we have a halacha, it's interesting, based on a different biblical verse. This is found in the last book of the Bible as we have it. No, it's not the last book in this one. It's the last, the last of the prophets. And this is found on page, let's see, 1,400 and what is it? 1,400 Let's find this verse. This is the first, this is a, a, the prophet called Malachi. Prophet of Ma- this is one of the Haftarot. Malachi is a um, So this is one of the Haftarot. It's page 1,405. So, God, so the, the prophet says the following. Prophet is complaining. In verse number, complaining. Prophets do a lot of complaining. Magishim al mizbechi lechem migoal. You offered defiled food on my altar. Vamartim vameg yalnucha. You say, how have we defiled you? Answer. By marchem shulchan Hashem nivzehu. Beki tagishun iver lizboach ein ra. Beki tagishu pisech becholay ein ra. Hakriveo norepechotecha. God, the prophet complains when you're bringing the sacrifices you're bringing the second rate stuff lame animals animals with blemishes etc and you say what's, what's the problem so the prophet says bring this bring it to your princes see if they would accept it the princes won't accept it you bring it to your important politicians give them a gift of a third rate thing they, they, won't, they won't like it so I'm not worse than them this is in the Gemara discusses this like the details. It's halach of hakriveyu nola pechatecha. The sacrifice has to be first rate. It's first rate sacrifices. And the Torah speaks about blemishes and all kinds of things like that. So that's 
a second halacha of I'm not convinced that it's necessarily in other words it's like it's an interesting problem not for our purposes here about blemishes and brokenness and worthiness in the temple there's a lot to be said about that there's a lot to be said that the best people are the most broken but on the other hand if you go to Westminster Abbey and they're marching there you know what I mean and you have all these people marching there and they all seem perfectly healthy and walking you know so there's something about the, something about the, maybe it's make-believe in a certain sense, it is make-believe in a certain sense, but there's something about the, you know, this idea of a place which has no blemishes, a place where everything is perfect, a place where everything is dignified and beautiful, etc. So that's, that's the halach of hakriveo no lepechatecha. That's the second, uh, <coughs> second aspect of, second element of, of, uh, of uh, of Sukkot of of, uh, of uh, Hidur on 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 Sukkot. Let me see. I have in my notes here. We should just find the last. Didn't the Kohen have to be perfect also? Without a mum. That's right. The Kohanim, not just the Begadim, the animals and the and the animals and the. Oh, there's not yet, yeah, right. That's also true. There's, and there's a third halacha, not the third halacha. If you, if you, if you learn Kachim, you know this stuff, you, learn, you have to learn Kachim, okay, fine. But the halacha is when certain sacrifices are allowed to be eaten. Allowed to be eaten. How do you eat them? So when you, when you eat certain, some, certain, the burnt offerings are not allowed to be eaten, but most of the other, all the other offerings can be eaten, essentially. Some only by the priest, some by the person that brings them. So the halacha is, the Gemara, the Pasuk says in Bamidbar, L'mashcha vahem. L'mashcha vahem. The Gemara is the drasha, L'mashcha is to pour upon them, the, 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 they're given L'mashcha, to pour upon them, the, the priest that had chosen, are those that was, were poured upon them, the, the sacred, the, the anointing oil. But L'mashcha, the, the, other, the other people that are anointed in the Bible are actually kings. So the Gemara makes the comment about these priests, Kamosha. I'm paraphrasing. Kederach ha-mulachim. The priest should eat the way kings eat. In other words, the kind of food you can intermingle. What's being, a, a, say, a flower offering? What can you add into the flower offering? You can, have, you can go first class. You should eat the, please should eat the best possible food. The way the, the, way the, king, the, way the kings, are, the upper, upper class eats. That's the way the priest should eat. So we have this halacha of beautification of Hidor in terms of sacrifice. That's where we find it. And not just, by the way, in terms of the priest and the blemishes and the way you eat and all of that and the kinds of animals you bring. Not only that, and the big day kahuna. But you have something else about the temple that's very striking, which is the temple is a place where the service of God is supposed to be very beautiful. And we have in the temple something else that's very interesting, and that is the service in the temple is not just sacrifices, but it is accompanied by, by song. And two kinds of song. The Talmud disputes, which is the primary, but there are two kinds of song. There is, there is the song that is the musical instruments, which are described in the book of Chronicles at length, the musical instruments, and then there are also the singers, the, the vocal, the choir, the Levium is singing. Shira Bapeh, Shira Bekli, the Chatzotra of the trumpets in chapter 10 of Bamidbar accompanying the sacrifices. So the temple, in short, 
the service in the temple should be the most beautiful service possible, and music is very central to the service in the temple. So now, so it strikes me that, so what does it say about the holiday of Sukkot? Then we'll get to Hanukkah. The holiday of Sukkot, essentially, is a holiday in which we are reminding ourselves of the, of the, of the temple. And in fact, I would go further and say that one can see the very Sukkah itself. You leave your home and you go to the Sukkah for seven days, that the Sukkah itself is understood in rabbinic thought as being a kind of temple, as being a kind of remembrance of the temple. The Torah says you shall dwell in Sukkot for seven days to remember that God took us out and put us in the Sukkot as we traveled through the desert. There is a dispute in the Gemara, of course, what are these booths that we dwelt in in the desert? The physical booths that we lived in? That's what it sounds like. Or is it the clouds of glory, which means the, the tabernacle, which means the, yeah, the very name tabernacles itself, by the way. It's a holiday for Sukkot. Sukkot is called in English tabernacles, right? Which is Mishkan. And the truth is, and this is the point I want to make, then we'll get to Hanukkah in the remaining time, that when you think about the story of the Chumash, and the story of the Torah, the storyline is like this. In the book of Exodus, God, we leave Egypt. It's Passover. We travel to the desert, and we come to Mount Sinai. That's in the third month. So in our tradition, it's the Shavuot. The Torah never connects them, but Shavuot is the third month. And then, in the Torah, you have the story of the golden calf. Right? The golden calf episode. Before the golden calf, Moses, Moshe is given all of the instructions how to build the temple. Goes up to the mountain, he's getting all the instructions. Temple has different parts and different pieces to it and all that. And he, God is giving Moshe the Luchot. And just as Moshe is about to come down the mountain, he's informed that the people have made a golden calf. Moses comes down the mountain, he sees a golden calf, they're worshipping it. He breaks the, he breaks the, tab, he breaks the tablets. And now the question is, how do we pick up the pieces? How can we actually restore the relationship with God and build this temple, build this mishkan, this tabernacle? So in the Chumash, actually, there's a whole process which culminates finally in God agreeing to give Moshe another set of tablets. And that happens when God reveals to Moshe these attributes of mercy. Hashem Hashem Kerachum V'chanun Hashem Hashem Kerachum V'chanun The forgiving God, the merciful God, the gracious God. That's this formula that we're reciting over and over again on, on Yom Kippur, actually. So Yom Kippur is the day in our tradition when Moses got the second tablets. And once you get the second tablets, once you've repaired the sin of the golden calf, then you can go and you build the Mishkan. So in this formula, if leaving is Passover, coming to Sane is Shavuot, breaking the tablets, which is probably on Shivas and Batamuz or whatever, and then you move to getting the second tablets back on Yom Kippur, and the book ends with the Mishkan. So what's, what's this Mishkan? What's the next holiday? Next holiday is Sukkot, actually. So the festival of Sukkot, actually, if you think about the narrative, the Jewish calendar is based, let me say this, the Jewish calendar is based on the book of Exodus. The story of Exodus is the Jewish calendar. So each of these events is singled out in the Jewish calendar. It ends, the end of it, the happy ending, is the holiday of Sukkot, which comes after you repair the problem of the golden calf. So now let's get to Hanukkah. See how Hanukkah plays out over here. What actually is Hanukkah? 
So Hanukkah, it turns out, is, it's a funny holiday, Hanukkah, because it's unlike the other holidays. I mean, the overall theme here is Purim and Hanukkah. But what Hanukkah doesn't have, this is actually a very important point, it doesn't have several things, but the main thing it doesn't have, which all the other festivals have, is a uh, text. There's no text for Hanukkah. It's the book of Maccabees. They'll make a big fuss about that. But i got to tell you, it doesn't count. It counts for something. It's not part of our Bible. The book of, it's part of the Christian Bible, and some in, in the, the different Christian, uh, the Eastern Church, the, the other church have different, accept different pieces of it. But the fact of the matter is that in our tradition, our canon, there's no book of Maccabees. So Hanukkah is a festival that has no text. It's exactly the opposite of Purim. Purim is a festival that's all about the text. Megillah. 98% of Purim is the Megillah, basically. I mean, in terms of that tradition. Hanukkah is a holiday where there's no, there's no text. What it does have is something else. What Hanukkah essentially is, is Hanukkah. Chinuch, it's the rededication of the temple. The temple had been defiled. That's what it's... So we say in our prayers, in Alanisim, the temple had been defiled by somebody. It's not clear who defiled the temple. It's a big question. There's a dispute who defiled the temple. We know the Chashmonaim are fighting against Malchut Yavon HaRasha, the wicked Greek, uh, wicked Greeks. But the Greeks themselves were not fighting us. They were the Syria Greeks. So according to one view, these, 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 basically a bunch of non-Jews who came over, who tried to destroy our religion, force us not to observe our commandments. That's one view. So we say in the Alanisim, Mashkicham Toratecha that's one point of view. The other point of view is that the real problem was not the Syrians so much. They were our fellow Jews. The fellow Jews who had adopted the Syrian way of life and they're the ones who actually defiled the temple. This is a great dispute, not for now, in, in various, and it's a dispute actually among the commentaries on the Talmud. between the Ramban and the Balamar, it's extremely interesting. I'm sure someone's going to touch on this. Who actually defiled the temple? Was it our own? Was it a civil war, basically? our own fellow Jews. We defiled our own temple. Or is it the non-Jews who came and defiled? Either way, the temple had been defiled. And what happened was that after a war was waged against these forces, we came into the temple and we were able to purify the temple. We purified the temple. We cleaned out the temple and we lit the menorah in the temple. So the idea of lighting the candles, the Hanukkah candles, actually, is the idea of, is a reminder to us that the, the temple, that the sanctity of the temple has been restored, okay? And that in fact, not only has the sanctity of the temple been restored, but that somehow, some way, we seem to be not just perhaps recalling the sanctity of the temple, but we transpose, we're saying in a, in a sense, that the sanctity of the temple that resided one time out there, we have no temple anymore, but it once resided out there, we were able to take some of the sanctity of the temple and to light it inside our own homes. Because the mitzvah of Hanukkah is to light the candle inside your own house. In this respect, it's very interesting. It's, it's related to Sukkot, but the opposite. Because on the festival of Sukkot, 
the way we are actually reminding ourselves of the temple is by building a, a, a different, diff, by leaving it, by leaving our homes actually, or by establishing our homes someplace else. True on a temporary basis, but we establish it someplace else. So we are, and the house that we are building called the sukkah, this little fragile structure, among other things, is a kind of, it's kind of, it's a kind of temple. It's a kind of remembrance of the temple. It's interesting, by the way, that the Torah, when it talks about the Mishkan, in the 29th chapter of Shemot, it says, at the end of all the instructions of how to build a temple, it says in chapter 29, I'll read the verse to you, let's see, chapter 29, in this translation, on page uh, 170. 170, let's find what this is. Yeah, 179. It gives a reason for the temple. The Torah actually gives an explanation why it wants us to build a temple. It says, you should bring this, build this temple, at the top of 179, chapter 29, right at the end of the chapter, Vishokhanti, Betoch, I will dwell amongst the people of Israel, I'll be their God. And then it says, Viyadu, and they will know, Kiani Hashem, Eloheim, I am their God, Asher Tzeti Yotam, Eretz Mitzrayim, Vishokhli Betochom, and I took them out of Egypt, for the purpose of dwelling amongst them. I am the Lord, your God, their God. How do you know, actually, is a good question. Build me a temple and you will know, the Torah says, you will know that I took you out of Egypt for the purpose of dwelling amongst them. How do you know that? do. What do you mean you will know? How? How do you know? So, so yeah, but how does the concrete, so you're saying, the very experience of, of having a physical place, Viyadu doesn't mean to intellectually know necessarily. Sometimes Radat can mean experiential. It's often used sexually, Viyada. It doesn't always mean to know something from a book or even that kind of knowledge. It's a kind of a, a visceral, a kind of deep understanding, very basic understanding of something. That's one meaning of Yadda. So it could be that the very building of the space itself, dwelling there, experience. The experience gives you knowledge. So true. The experience gives you knowledge. That's one possibility. The other possibility is different. Because the temple in the Torah, the Mishkan, is the place from which God continues to speak. So you will build this and you will know from the fact that I continue to instruct, God commands continually from the Mishkan, those are two very different possibilities. In any event, the purpose of the Mishkan is viadu. What's interesting is the term, the, the term do something in order to know appears two or three other times in the Torah. One of them is you build the sukkah in order to know to remind, to remind you that you should know that I caused you to live in booths when I took you out of Egypt. Which according to some interpretations being I built the Mishkan for you. I, I, I accompanied you in the journey. I was, I was a presence. So it's interesting that once another link perhaps to, to the sukkah, the idea of the sukkah, but there we leave our homes and we go to a sukkah. But on Hanukkah it's different. Because on Hanukkah the, 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 the light of the, of the menorah is not outside the house actually. I mean it's, it's, that'd be, it's, it's by the door of the house. First of all, the mitzvah is near Ishu Beito. 
it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a commandment on the house. The real mitzvah, forget, forget Mahadrin, Mahadrin, Minah Mahadrin. What is the mitzvah of Hanukkah? One, one light for the house. We have no other mitzvah, one light for the house. Usually the mitzvah, you do, everybody does the mitzvah. But in this case, that's not so. In this case, near Ishul Beito, and not just that, but where do you place the Hanukkah candles according to the Gemara? Over time, this changes. But in the Gemara, you place it by the Petach Habayit. You place the Hanukkah candles opposite the mezuzah, actually. So it's like Pesach. With yes, okay. it is like Pesach. It's very good, actually. Maybe I'll discuss that briefly. But the point is, so the, the, the menorah is different, actually. The menorah is not building an alternative structure. The menorah is taking the light of the temple, which is the light of the menorah, and moving it into your house. And by the way, it's interesting opinion, the lights of the menorah, unlike the lights of Shabbos, you're not allowed to benefit from. That's why we have a Shabbos. The reason you have the extra candle for the menorah is because, technically speaking, you're not supposed to benefit from the Hanukkah light. So you like the additional light, so if you've got to benefit from the light, you could say you've got to benefit from the extra light, which is not one of the candles of the menorah. So why, but why is that so? Why is it forbidden to benefit from the Hanukkah lights? So the medievals have a big dispute about this. Shabbos is the opposite. The Shabbos candles are there to create light. Right? You're supposed to benefit from the Shabbos lights. But the Hanukkah lights, you're not allowed to benefit from. What's the difference? So according to a set of interpreters, the reason you can't forbid to benefit from the Hanukkah lights is because the Hanukkah lights are the lights of the temple. And the temple lights, you're not permitted to benefit from. So essentially what you're doing is lighting a temple light inside your own house. I was thinking that so it's similar but different than Sukkot. It's different than Sukkot. On Sukkot, you actually, as it were, creating a Mishkan, creating a holy space outside your home for seven days or whatever. But on Chalak, you're trying to bring the light into your house, trying to bring that temple light in, in, into your house. And it, what Zella was, was saying before, I'll just repeat what she was saying, slight embellishments, which is this. The Talmud says that you light... Talmud says you light the Hanukkah candles in the Talmud by the door, opposite the mezuzah. The mezuzah is on the right, right? And the, and the Hanukkah lights are on the opposite side. So Zemo says it reminds us of what the Torah says about the Paschal sacrifice. Paschal sacrifice, Paschal sacrifice is the blood of the Paschal sacrifice was placed on the door. On the, on the two sides of the doorpost. And the blood of the Paschal sacrifice is the beginning of the march towards freedom. They place it on the doorpost as if to say, once we bring the sacrifice on the door, we're going to walk out those doors and we're going to, going to move towards freedom. We're going to travel in the desert, move toward the land, etc. So it's the first step. So from this perspective, you can see the Hanukkah candles not just as an ending, but as actually a, uh, a uh, beginning. That the Hanukkah candles, the temple's been destroyed. The temple's been desecrated. Now the process begins of restoring the temple, which is to restore this connection between ourselves and God, which begins at the darkest day of the year. So the idea of lighting the Hanukkah, it's a little tiny candle inside the house, is a way of saying that we are beginning this process of moving towards a, uh, 
a much greater revelation. So it's different then. And I was thinking that actually, just to wrap up this little thought, there's so much more here, I just wanted to come back for a moment to this question, what I mentioned before about the way the Torah describes the building of the temple, which is it happens after the golden calf, and uh, it takes place, actually, there's an interruption after the golden calf, you can't build the temple. First of all, you don't have the tablets, and you need the tablets for the temple. And God made the tablets, you can't, have no, no architect can make them, so you, can't, you actually can't build the temple. And there's a process of, 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 of reconciliation. What's interesting is, in, in, in this process of reconciliation, it says the following. I guess I'll have to stop with this thought, which is this. It says, what Moshe did was, he took his own tent. Remember the story? He takes his own tent, and he puts it far away from the camp. God said to Moshe, I can't dwell amongst the people. Moshe said, okay, don't dwell amongst them. How about five miles down the road? How about dwelling with me? Oh, you? You're, you're, I love you. You're great. So Moshe takes his own tent, he puts it outside, and he calls it Oel Moed. He names his own tent Oel Moed, which means the Mishkan. So he calls his own tent the Mishkan. And then it said, whoever would seek God would go. Was that verse? Whoever would seek God would go out to Moses' tent, the Oel Moed, which was outside the camp. Yeah, this is on page 186. 186. God and Moshe are meeting, and it's far away, and people can... People have access. Moshe created access for those who are willing to take the journey. It says that when Moshe would walk out to his tent, people would stand up and look. Some would go and search, some would look. And then in verse number 10, It says that the people, when they saw the cloud, which is God's presence, standing by Moses' tent, everybody would stand up and bow down at the door of their own tent, actually. Some people would travel out far away, take the journey. Some people couldn't, wouldn't, and want, whatever. But they would stand by their own door. Their own door. And they, when they saw the cloud out there, they would bow down to God in their own door. This reminds me very much of what we call of the mitzvah of the candles of Hanukkah, basically. There's a temple out there someplace. But we have no access to that temple anymore. But we can access the temple in a different way, actually. We can imagine the temple, and we stand at our own door, and we bow down at our own door. That's exactly what Hanukkah is. And this was the preliminary step to getting the temple back, actually. So we have over here, one might say, a, perhaps a biblical, uh, a biblical story which lies behind, in a certain sense, the idea, of, the idea of Hanukkah. I do want to make one last comment about Hanukkah, not a statement, but a, something to think about. The, the position that what I've tried to stake out here is the idea that the holiday of Hanukkah, it's a holiday with no text, but the holiday of Hanukkah is about the temple, which means it's about holiness. It's a day where we imagine what it might mean to have a holy existence, to have a holy house, basically to bring holiness into the house. But what's interesting is that the holiday of Hanukkah, per se, does not accompany any of this, in certainly no direct fashion, with any kind of blueprint. Maybe it gets us to, to wonder, to imagine, how one might arrive at that space of 
being a holy person without a specific text. How, how do you do this? It's a good question. How do you bring that which is holy into our personal lives, our families, our, our spaces, and all that? That, I think, is a great challenge. It doesn't give us the direction, really. It doesn't tell us how to do it. From that perspective, one might say it is truly a holiday in the midst of the darkness. It, it involves, you know, the, the Talmud says the story that when they came into the temple and they wanted to light the candles, they couldn't find any oil that was, that was, had not been, uh, that was pure. All the oil had been defiled. They searched and they found one small cruise of oil. And they lit that little cruise of oil, and that little cruise of oil burns for eight days. You know? So I guess the question for us would be, how do you find that little cruise of oil? It requires a search. It's not so simple. There's no specific text over here. There's no specific direction. And this is the challenge that we face on the Hanukkah. Just to summarize what I wanted to put forward here, was that the, I wanted to put out the, the thought that when Beit Shammai said, Pariyachag, that the, that the sacrifices of Sukkot are in the order of the greatest to the lowest, that the view of Beit Shammai actually is, you know, reveals to us, if you think about it, a very, very profound connection between Sukkot and Hanukkah in the sense these are the two temple holidays that we have. They're different. In one of them we construct our own temple. In the other one we try to bring the temple lights into our house. Not a simple matter. 